Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to LSE for this hybrid event. My name is Lee Jenko and I am Professor of Political Theory at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I am very pleased to be here to welcome Brian Class, both to our online audience and our audience here at the LSE in live person. First, let me introduce our speaker, Brian Klass. Brian is an associate professor in global politics at University College London, a contributing writer for The Atlantic magazine, the creator of the award-winning Power Corrupts podcast, and a regular contributor to international media outlets, including the BBC, MSNBC, CNN, and many others. Klass completed his undergraduate degree in his home state of Minnesota at Carleton College his MPhil at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and his DPhil at New College, Oxford. He is the author of five books, including Corruptible, Who Gets Power, and How It Changes Us, along with the book he'll be talking about tonight, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Class was previously a member of the LSE Government Department as a fellow from 2015 to 2018. However, he is perhaps best known for his viral appearance on the BBC Netflix international hit mockumentary, Kunk on Earth, in which class debated with Philomena Kunk over, among other scholarly debates, whether bears have arms. I don't know what the hashtag for this meeting is, but I've been told to announce that there is one. LSE <laughs> <laughs> fluke, I think, is the answer. Ah, there we go. Okay, for those, I also have guidance that says, to mention Twitter users, which is outdated. Those users of X, the hashtag for today's event is on the screen. This event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, there will be the chance after the talk to put your questions to Brian. For our online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature at the top left of your screen. Questions will be submitted to me um, or to Kay in the audience. Please let us know your name and affiliation. We are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni, so please let us know. For those of you here in the theater, I will let you know when we will open the floor for questions. If you can raise your hand and wait for the microphone. I will then ask you to provide your name and affiliation before posing your question. And I will try to ensure a range of questions from both our online audience and our audience here in the theater. Finally, there is also a book related to this event and there will be a book signing following the event. But now I am delighted to hand over to Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be back at the London School of Economics uh, talking about this book. And this is a very unusual book for a political scientist to write, and I think it's because I have long been a disillusioned social scientist. And that's because I think that the world is more driven by chance and randomness and chaos than a lot of the models that I used to produce seem to suggest. And so I'm going to be talking about areas that are not, strictly speaking, in social science as well as some that are. And I'm going to walk through a little bit of the ideas of this book, which comes out on Thursday, but of course, you get the opportunity to buy it uh, a couple days early tonight. And I'm going to walk through a few different ideas in this talk. The first is I'm going to make the case that flukes do change the world, that small contingent accidents divert trajectories of both our lives and our societies and are actually highly consequential. 
We're often told to ignore the noise and focus on the signal. I think that's a huge mistake, and I'll try to make the case for that. Secondarily, I'm going to explain why that's a mistake, which is derived from chaos theory. And one of the central ideas in this book is to apply chaos theory to human societies and to human lives. Third, I'm going to talk about some ideas from evolutionary biology of contingency versus convergence and how they can help us better understand social change. I'm going to talk about narrative bias and the storytelling animal and how humans are prone to stitching together neat and tidy narratives to make sense of a chaotic and complex world. I'm going to draw from physics to talk about self-organized criticality and why cascades and avalanches and black swans have become more likely than ever before, why we're more prone to flukes than in the history of the species. And I'm going to talk about how we've shifted an environment from local to global instability, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, and I'll conclude by talking about how we might be able to better navigate this chaotic, complex, and uncertain world that is swayed too often by flukes. But I'm going to start the story in an unpredictable place, which is to say we're going to go back to Kyoto, Japan in 1926. And Kyoto is this place where a couple in 1926 decided to go on a vacation, just a sightseeing vacation, a holiday, and they stayed at a place called the Miyako Hotel and fell in love with the city. They were utterly in awe of its beautiful foliage, its temples, etc. And they did that thing that many of us do when we go on holiday. They developed a soft spot for Kyoto. Now, normally a couple's vacation doesn't change the course of history, but every so often it does. And that is because in this instance, there was a person in this couple, the husband, whose name was Henry Stimson. And 19 years later, he ended up as America's Secretary of War. And he was the person who was the top civilian to determine where to drop the atomic bomb in 1945. Now, the generals who were deciding for the strategic target of the most impact, all of them unilaterally and universally agreed Kyoto is the number one pick. This was not good news for Stimson, who viewed it as his, quote, pet city. So he sprung into action and twice met with President Truman. And he looked at the bombing targets, and lo and behold, right in the middle of the plan where they were going to drop the atomic bomb, the Miyako Hotel, where he stayed. So he decides to meet with Truman twice. He sits down with him and says, you have to take Kyoto off the list. And after the second meeting, Truman eventually relents and agrees to take Kyoto off the targeting list. So the first bomb is dropped on Hiroshima instead. Why? Because 19 years earlier, a couple went on a vacation and fell in love with the city. The second bomb is supposed to go to a place called Kokura on August 9th, 1945. And as the boxcar, the bomber for the second bomb, takes off, it arrives at Kokura, and there's briefly some unpredicted cloud cover. Now, you don't want to drop your second atomic bomb in a random place in a field, so they decide, because they don't have the visual confirmation of the city, to circle around. And they circle around, the clouds don't part, and eventually, as the fuel is running low, they make the decision to go to the secondary target, which is Nagasaki. And as a result of this, when you think about why these two bombs were dropped where they were, the immediate causes of one was a tourist vacation 19 years earlier, and the second one was a cloud. Now, when we model history, when we model social change, how far down the list of variables would the vacation history of American government officials be in our model? How far down the list would meteorology be? But in these instances, hundreds of thousands of people lived or died based on a vacation two decades previously and a cloud. And this is the way the world works. It's just something that doesn't fit into our neat and tidy models, although we don't always see such consequential change as a result of these flukes. Now, the second story I want to talk about, that's the bomber with the cloud and the uh, mushroom clouds. 
The second story I want to talk about is the story of this woman pictured here in her wedding photo named Clara Maudlin Jansen. Now, she lived in rural Wisconsin around 1905. She was living in rural Wisconsin. And she was married to her husband, you can see, sitting next to her. And she had four young children. The oldest, I believe, was five years old. Probably had her hands full. And I can infer, based on what happened, that she probably had some sort of postpartum depression or mental health breakdown. They probably didn't have the right words for it uh, in 1905. But she snapped. She had, a, she had a complete breakdown. And tragically, she ended up killing her four children and taking her own life. And you can see the gravestone of her four kids, their, their birth dates, you can see from 1901 to 1904. And this happened in 1905 in a farmhouse in Keeler, Wisconsin. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because this was my great-grandfather's first wife. And he came home and found the entire family murdered, uh, his wife dead, in this farmhouse. And of course, his life was shattered in one of the most unbelievably tragic events uh, that you can imagine. He got remarried eventually to, his, uh, to my great-grandmother. And so I did not know about this until I was in my mid-20s. And my dad sat me down and showed me this newspaper clipping from 1905. And the aspect of this was you know, a realization not only that there was this dark chapter in my family history that I was oblivious to, but the more profound realization was that if these children were not murdered, I would not exist. And not even that, but you would not be listening to me. This lecture wouldn't exist, right? And this is chaos theory in action, that there's a, a 1905 mass murder that leads to this event. And it's quite clearly a, a causal chain of events that if anything were different in that chain, we would not be sitting here, you would not be listening to my voice. But it also is a, a bizarre thing to grapple with as an individual to understand you are effectively an accident of history, which I think we all are, and also that I am the byproduct of a, a horrible, horrible tragedy of children being killed. So this was part of the origin story of thinking about these flukes and thinking about this book and how to think uh, more deeply about chaos theory and social science. So what is chaos theory? Well, chaos theory is something that I think we intuitively understand, but we don't apply to the present and we don't apply to humans very often. And I'll explain what I mean. Most of us, when we imagine going back in time, right, there's these thought experiments, there's sci-fi films, there's fantasy films, that you get in a time machine, you go back to the prehistoric past, and the advice is always the same. Don't squish anything. Don't talk to anyone, because you might accidentally change the future in a way that deletes yourself from history, right? Don't talk to your parents. Don't go and squish a bug, whatever it is. Now, that logic seems completely understandable to us. Of course, if you squished the wrong bug a million years ago, or you talked to someone a hundred years ago, you might actually create ripple effects that end up deleting yourself from the world. We never think about that in the present day. We never think about a squished bug, a missed bus, talking to someone is changing the future. But of course, cause and effect dynamics do not change whether it's the past or the present. They're exactly the same universally. So one of them is wrong. Either we're wrong in the present or we're wrong about our thoughts in the past. My argument is we're wrong about our thoughts in the present. That actually chaos theory is constantly diverting our lives, but that we are completely oblivious to the possible futures that we might inhabit and the possible social change that might be unleashed by small changes. Now, the origin story of chaos theory interestingly, is derived from a man named Edward Norton Lorenz, who was a meteorologist who helped forecast bombing raids over Japan in World War II. And of course, I don't know whether he was involved in the forecast of the cloud cover over Kokura, but it's certainly possible because he was deployed to forecast clouds in 1945 around Japan. Edward Norton Lorenz saw how flawed the models were in 1945 uh, meteorology. And so he decided to try to build better models, to try to develop a way to understand and tame the complete chaos of, of weather systems. 
This is uh, Lorenz pictured here. So he built a very simplified model on his, what was at the time in the 1960s, an LGB, uh, LGP30 computer. Now, what Lorenz's model did was it had 12 variables for the weather. It had all, you know, wind speed, temperature, the sort of standard stuff that you would imagine. And it had all these outputs every time it would run a simulation. And one day, Lorenz decides to save some time. So rather than starting the simulation over from the very beginning, he figures, I can start halfway through because I have the exact outputs for all the different variables. If I plug them into the model exactly as they were, surely the same thing will happen. The problem was, he does this. He puts in the numbers, so it's, you know, the wind speed is 3.456, the temperature is 12.891, whatever it is. He plugs these data points in, and all of a sudden, as time unfolds, the weather gets completely different from the previous model. And he doesn't understand what's going on. He's, how is this possible? I have the same data, the same parameters, the same math, different outcomes. What it turned out had happened was that the computer was truncating the data at three decimal points. So when he was plugging in 12.891, there were actually more numbers after that, but the computer was not spitting them out in the printout. So there were these infinitesimal differences in the wind speed and, and temperature. And what he realized was that these tiny measurement errors could be a millionth of a degree, could be a, a trillionth of a, a, a mile per hour in wind speed, were producing over 10 to 20 to 30 days radically different weather where it would go from a blue sky to a hurricane. And this is the origin story of the butterfly effect, which is also why we cannot predict the weather with our best supercomputers beyond seven to 10 days, because they would have to be absolutely perfect. If they're off by a trillionth of a degree, they will be wrong. And so we all experience chaos theory in that limit of uh, a weather's prediction, but we don't apply it very often to the rest of our lives. And we, of course, will see the butterfly effect is the argument that a butterfly flapping its wings can later produce a hurricane. And this is a, a validated part of science, rarely spoken about in social science. But the lesson for humans that I hope to convince you of tonight is that in a world of chaos theory where small changes produce ripple effects that can produce a mass murder causing this lecture in a small way, you can have unexpected events in which we control nothing but influence everything. So one of the core ideas in Fluke is that there is no control. In a world of chaos, you cannot control anything. But you do influence everything in the world. And I, the, the third part of the book uh, subtitle, Why Everything We Do Matters, is not some cheap, abstract, BS, self-help thing. It's, I, I literally believe it. I think that every single thing that we're doing is going to change the world in some undiscernible way, some small, some big, but it's not the same. And I'll, I'll hopefully convince you of the same in a moment. Now, a framework to think about this bewildering idea of these ripple effects and, and sort of chance events diverting trajectories, changing our lives and so on, I borrow from evolutionary biology where there is a raging debate between what's called contingency and convergence. Now, contingency is basically the stuff happens theory of evolutionary biology. Convergence is the everything happens for a reason theory of evolutionary biology. And it makes intuitive sense when I give you a few examples. My favorite example, <clears throat> thank you to AI for generating this strange, apparently the asteroid is the Earth, but it's, we, let's, let's run with it. Um, <laughs> the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs, okay? So what happens according to physics is that the Oort cloud, this distant part outside the solar system, has this oscillation, this sort of brief vibration. And this oscillation flings this giant space rock towards the Earth. And it hits the Earth in the most catastrophic way possible. It hits it in a way that's in gypsum rock, gypsum-rich uh, rock underneath, uh, just outside the Yucatan Peninsula. And this produces this massive cloud of gas that's extremely deadly. 
and also an infrared pulse where the surface of the Earth is about 500 degrees Fahrenheit, effectively broiling the dinosaurs at the same temperature you'd cook a chicken, right? Now, this is something where what ultimately happens is that the offshoots of life from this asteroid impact are the things that could dig if they were on land and the things that could swim. And that's everything that's around us. Everything that exists today is basically derived from that which could survive the asteroid impact because it could dig or it could swim. Uh, we're, the, you know, we're, we're from the diggers. So the, uh, the, the point here is that when you think about this, if the asteroid had been delayed by a second, it might have hit a totally different part of the Earth and it wouldn't have wiped out the dinosaurs. Mammals likely would not have become dominant and you would not have had humans. If it had gone a minute later, it probably would have missed Earth. So 66 million years ago, this space rock from the Oort cloud oscillation, this is contingency, right? All of human history wiped out, but for one second, possibly. So it's very obvious that there are moments in evolutionary biology, um, you know, if you're interested in this, the Burgess Shale and the Canadian Rockies is a great example of this, where a whole bunch of life plans get wiped out in a mass extinction event as well. But the point is that there's these contingent moments where the trajectory of evolution is irrevocably changed from this small change in outcomes. So that's contingency. Convergence is the idea that there's order within the disorder, okay? And that's because evolution gravitates towards things that work. It's solutions and survivors that, uh, well, survivors basically shape the future, right? Now, my favorite example of this is on the screen, which is that about 600 million years ago, octopus and humans, or cephalopods and, and, and what would eventually become humans, diverged on the evolutionary branch. So our origin story and the origin story of the octopus split 600 million years ago. But if you take out an octopus's eye and you take out a human's eye, don't do this, but if you did this, you would see very, very similar structure. In fact, they're nearly identical in a lot of ways. And the reason for that is not because both octopus and humans got really, really lucky. It's because there's only so many ways to process visual information effectively. Evolution through a series of tinkering over hundreds of millions of years found, found this, and it emerged twice totally independently with a mutation from the same gene called the Pax6 gene, which ultimately produces this outcome of extremely similar eyes on extremely different creatures. So evolution and also social change, I think, exists somewhere between contingency and convergence. There are moments where the asteroid hits and the future is changed forever. And there's also, within the, in between those moments, some ordered structures because survivors and other things that work actually shape the future. And we live somewhere between order and disorder, right? We, we, we couldn't exist if it was pure disorder. If it was pure order, life would be very, very boring. Now, another good example of evolutionary contingency that I like, that will, just to give you a couple more uh, examples from the animal kingdom that I like. Contingency, one of my favorite examples is called the Binturong. It's from South, Southeast Asia. Uh, it's cute, I mean, don't get me wrong, but the thing that's really strange about this animal is that it has a chemical compound in its urine, this is by complete chance, that is exactly the same chemical compound that gives cooked popcorn its aroma. So if you were to walk through the jungle in the Binturong's habitat, it smells like a movie theater because evolution can be very strange. And so this is one of those contingencies where it just produces this odd outcome and it's sort of a one-off. It's the only animal that has this. Now, there's actually a name in convergence for carcinization, which is a, an evolutionary term for turning something into a crab-like body plan because this has happened at least five times in evolutionary history. There's a joke among evolutionary biologists, not the best joke, but it's a joke that says, if God exists, he really wants crabs, right? Because they keep arising, and there's also a joke that humans will eventually develop pincers because it's just a really good body plan for survival. So you can see the differences, right? There's sort of these evolutionary one-offs versus the convergence that produces patterns 
repeatability, and so on. Now, why am I telling you this in a talk as a social scientist to think about the way that change works? I think that contingency and convergence are extremely powerful frameworks to understand social change and to understand our own lives. Now, when it comes to our own lives, I think one of the examples that I use in Fluke is I say, let's imagine something called the snooze button effect, okay? So the snooze button effect is you imagine that you wake up groggily on a you know, Tuesday morning, and what happens is you think, I'd really like to go back to sleep for a few minutes. So you slap the snooze button. And then the, the, the sort of trajectory of your life rewinds immediately, and you don't slap the snooze button. Now, if that moment is contingent, then your world will shift depending on whether you hit the snooze button or not. If it's convergent, your life will basically unfold in more or less, more or less the same way. Some aspects of our lives are convergent. We might end up in the same place. We might go to the same university as we always were going to, regardless of the snooze button. Some things are irrevocably changed. You will meet different people. You might get into a car accident. Your day will be possibly delayed. And the, the way that I make this point without going into too much graphic detail, but I think this logic is ironclad at this point, that contingency is real, is the moment of conception. And the reason why I talk about this is because if you think about it, uh, the moment of conception in which a child is conceived, if it is a microsecond difference, a different person exists, okay? Now that means it's obviously true that if you took a, a, a sip of coffee or didn't, or hit the snooze button or didn't on that day, a different child will be born, you'll have a different kid. But that's also true for the day before. And that's also true for the day before that. It has to be an unbroken line to exactly that moment for that kid to exist. Now this is also true for social change, but it's really difficult to model this. So we don't. And so one of the core ideas that I'm presenting here is that one of the artifacts of the way we understand the world through modeling is we basically write out what I think is actually the way the world works in causality in terms of chaos theory and contingency simply because the straitjacket of modeling forces us to do so with a few variables, often big variables for big causes and effects that make more sense to us. We, we don't write the noise into our models, right? They're the error term, this sort of amorphous thing um, that quantitative modeling just sort of says, well, that's everything else, that's the snooze buttons. But often they really do matter. So why is contingency so often written out of intellectual discourse when we think about the history of ideas? And why are we told to focus on the signal but not the noise, but ignore the noise? Sorry, there's a formatting problem. But <clears throat> I think one of the main reasons for this is because Throughout intellectual history, we have developed ideas around science that are tied to elegant order. Now, in the, in the distant past, this was, it was heretical to suggest that randomness was, was, was producing outcomes because God would not produce randomness, right? In other words, a lot of physics and so on was aiming to try to explain the world through a model so elegant that only God could have come up with it. And in a way, Isaac Newton and sort of laws of physics met the task, right? That there was all of a sudden this way where Previously, if you threw a ball, you had no way of predicting exactly where it would land, and it was sort of wizardry to imagine that you could actually you know, predict that. And Isaac Newton sort of develops this clockwork model of the universe that all of a sudden explains things in a highly, highly uh, ordered, rational progression, and the equations are elegant and make sense. So this sort of intellectual idea also gets furthered by things like Adam Smith and the sort of hidden hand, this idea, the guiding hand of economics. Um, these aspects are things where you end up producing this sort of idea of order. It's a huge part of the intellectual current, and it's heresy to suggest randomness or arbitrary accidents driving history. Now, one of the people who pushed this idea and said, hold on, I think there is a lot more randomness than we expect, is the man who's on cartoon form on the, on the screen. His name is Motu Kumura. He's a person who's a central figure in evolutionary biology, 
and he came up with the neutral theory, which basically says that molecular evolution often is driven to a much greater extent than people like Darwin would have suggested by neutral changes, the noise, right? The stuff that didn't have any meaning. It wasn't positive, it wasn't negative, it was just change. And it was effectively randomly directed, and it wasn't necessarily adaptive, it wasn't for a purpose everyone was looking for, what's the reason for this? He says, no, a lot of evolution is driven by neutrality. Now, Kimura is a really interesting figure in his own right because he wasn't just someone who provided these ideas as challenges to the sort of orthodoxy of intellectual thought. He was also someone who illustrated his point in his own life. And the reason I tell you that is because Motu Kimura in 1944 was really worried about getting conscripted into the Japanese army. And so he decided to enroll in Kyoto University and but for a vacation in 1926, he would have been incinerated by an atomic bomb in Japan. So you have this instance where this is something where intellectual thought is also being swayed by the development of biology through these historic accidents derived from chaos theory and a particularly consequential vacation in 1926. Now, when you think about these things, there is a lot of disorder. Why do we pretend there's not, right? I mean, one of the things that I will say from personal experience, and I'm gonna talk about the storytelling animal and the narrative aspects of humans. I go on the news every so often. I, you know, last week I was in New York and I was talking on MSNBC and so on. And it's one of these things where you go on the news and you cannot say three words, which are, I don't know. That's impossible. Pundits can't say this, right? You can never admit you don't know. You always have to have a reason for something. You also cannot say, maybe this was arbitrary or maybe this was just a complex interaction, right? When you go on TV to talk about finance, markets are reacting to X. Really? I mean, do you know? Eight billion people interacting in a world economy and there's one change that's explaining all of this? So I think there's this aspect where we boil down reality into very simple cause and effect narratives. And the reason for that is because our brains have evolved for pattern detection to amplify patterns and completely ignore explanations that are randomly derived and are involved with noise. And I'll show you some examples of this in a moment, but let's start with one that's closer to home, which is to say the Blitz in, uh, in World War II. There's this whole thing that's happening where you can imagine, I mean, imagine being someone who is living in London at this time and bombs are just falling out of the sky and randomly buildings are exploding and you don't want to die. Well, what you do in that moment of complete uncertainty, and this is what Londoners did, was they came up with superstitious explanations for where the next bomb would fall. And you can see a huge literature about this, about the rise in superstition. In World War I, the same thing happened where when they looked at the trenches full of dead bodies, loads of amulets, there was one group of soldiers that sold bat, they sewed bat wings into their underwear because they believed it protected them. I mean, and you know, it sounds ridiculous, but you can imagine if, if death is coming at random for you, a story is better than nothing. Right? It's sort of making sense of it. Now, when it comes to this, I'm gonna show you this graph, this plot that shows various aspects of London and where bombs fell. Now you look at this, this does not look random, okay? Like you can see there's very different clusters. We've got a little map with the Thames, various parts, there's Regent's Park up there and so on. And it's showing you this sort of cluster. It looks like there's a lot in that bottom right corner, right? So our brains look at that and they say, wow, this is, this is not a random spread. I better get out, I better go up to the top right corner because that's where, that's where I'm gonna be safe. But here's the thing, switch the dynamics, now it is random. It's just you've drawn different lines, right? And now they're, they're clustered in totally random patterns. So the frameworks we use to evaluate things depend on our point of view, our, our frame of reference and so on. And indeed, it was when it looks uh, actually at, you zoom out and look at the bombs, that's the cluster. 
I mean, it's incredibly random, and so random that it ends up as a circle, um, because the errors, the missing, was normally distributed like in a standard error. So these are the kinds of things where the way that we make sense of the world, we have a predisposition to storytelling, especially in moments of uncertainty. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, why uh, belief in witchcraft, about 40% of the world believes in witchcraft. And part of that is because uh, a significant chunk of the world is at the whims of daily life being unpredictable and risks of starvation and societies collapsing and so on. That superstition is a way that humans have developed to deal with causal uncertainty. It's a coping mechanism. So this has produced this idea, Jonathan Gottschall uses the phrase, the storytelling animal, where we've effectively evolved in our brains to cling on to patterns, basically no matter what, even if there is not a pattern to be found, we're allergic to explanations that are derived from randomness. And the people in evolutionary psychology will make the argument that this makes complete sense. Because if you imagine you're living in the period of hunter-gatherers, and there's sort of a, a rustling in the grass, right? Maybe there's a pattern there. Maybe a saber-toothed tiger is behind the grass. Maybe there's not. Well, the problem is that a false positive is not a problem. If you think there's a tiger there and there's not, you're okay. A false negative is deadly, right? If you think there's no tiger there and there is, you die. And through survivorship and through evolution selecting for those who survive, the brain has been basically fine-tuned by evolution to detect patterns because it's so much more advantageous and adaptive to over-detect patterns than to under-detect them. And this gives rise to what is called narrative bias. And narrative bias is the idea that humans make sense of the world through stories. And those stories can be causal. They can produce uh, behavioral changes because we believe things to be true, and we don't have uh, sort of a, an acceptance of random chance as an explanation. Now, interestingly, psychology shows that people are willing to accept random explanations only when it comes to positive events in our lives. So if you win the lottery, okay, fine, I just got lucky, right? People are willing to accept that. If you get cancer, if somebody breaks up with you, if you have a terrible outcome in your life, that's when randomness is totally, totally unacceptable. And the psychology studies verify this over and over and over. We need to make sense of this, right? This is why people have pillows where they've stitched in, you know, everything happens for a reason and so on, because it's comforting to believe there are reasons. But chaos theory shows that there are sometimes not reasons. Sometimes things just happen, right? A mass murder produces me. That's not for a reason. It's just what happened. So I think this is something where narrative bias, is, we can all see. I'm going to show you uh, six words. A tiger, a hunter, a tiger. Now, I can't say with certainty, but I would guess that most of you would stitch together roughly the same story. <laughs> that you have a tiger, a hunter arrives, the hunter is eaten or is chased away or whatever it is, right? Most people come up with that story. Most people have a story. This is just six words, right? There's no reason there's a story here. It's just six potentially unrelated words. It could be a tiger and another tiger a thousand miles away, a hunter that is in a different time period. But we instinctively, when we see this, uh, stitch together a story. Uh, there's an apocryphal story, it's apparently not true, I gather, but uh, of, of Ernest Hemingway, where he bets that he can basically make a, you know, a sort of feature-length story in a few words, and he, he comes up with this one, and it's uh, for, for sale, baby shoes, never worn, right? All of us have the same idea in our head. And that's because our brains have evolved to make sense of the world through stories. And there's a sto there, there, there could be no story there, but instinctively we make one. Now, this also filters into our literature, right? And there's loads of, loads of examples in, in, in film and literature and storytelling where we cannot handle randomness. So take Harry Potter, for example. Uh, spoiler alert, sorry if you've uh, not, not come across the ending, but, 
But in Harry Potter, you know, there's, there's this question, how is this going to end, right? You're reading all the books, how is this going to end? What's the big showdown between Voldemort, you must not be named, and Harry Potter? We don't know. But what we do know, this is the words of Jonathan Gottschall, Harry Potter isn't going to defeat Voldemort because the latter slips on a banana peel and breaks his head, right? We know this is not going to be the ending because we would just not accept it, right? It's like so unsatisfying to imagine like a random accident or like he falls off a cliff and dies. There has to be a resolution. And it's indeed shown in lots of studies of literary, uh, you know, literary analysis and film analysis and so on, that actually when films don't have arcs of justice and they don't have neat and tidy endings in which things all of a sudden make sense, they flop because our brains don't deal with them well and they don't like them. We, we like to make order out of disorder. Now, this thing raises the question of, okay, so we've got these brains that are hyper-attuned to making order out of disorder. What do we do in a world that's more complex than ever before, which is modern society, right? It's the most unbelievable, com unbelievably causally complex society ever in existence is the one that we're living in now. And our brains have evolved to make sense of a simple cause and effect story. Because if you lived in the hunter-gatherer period, you didn't have to figure out financial markets. You didn't have to think about people thousands of miles away. You didn't have cascades and black swans. You had to make sure you survived. And those cause and effects, uh, causes and effects were much more straightforward. So what do we do now? Well, this is where I'm gonna bring in the world of self-organized criticality and something called the sand pile model from physics. And I think it helps us make sense of why it feels like, but also why it is, that the world is more prone to shocks and more susceptible to flukes than ever before in history. The sand pile model has some very complicated math behind it, but let's just go with the actual analogy, which is to say, let's imagine that I give you a grain of sand and then another grain of sand, and you start to pile them up one by one, okay? Eventually, a pile gets created of sand. And at some point, the pile is going to be so tall and so precarious to be a, a, on the edge of chaos, as some physicists will call it, that a single additional grain will cause a collapse. Okay, it's so precarious that one grain, now of course, the entire set of grains are what actually caused the collapse. The trigger might be the last grain, but the collapse wouldn't happen without all of them. And what I'm going to argue is that we have engineered a society that is at the absolute limit of the sand pile, where single grains of sand, shocks and flukes can actually create cascades in ways that were never before possible. Now I'm gonna start with history and then I'll bring it up to the present day. So the origin story of World War I is one that endlessly is debated by historians. But what you can see is that a set of alliances in pre-World War I uh, time periods, the military alliances, created an entanglement between different countries such that a trigger could launch a mass world war. And the story that is often told here, one of the great contingency stories or what-ifs of history, is the story of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, where it was a fluke in a way, which is to say that the assassination plot failed initially, and then when they went to the hospital uh, later on, they were driving and their car broke down right in front of the assassin, who was able to then fire these shots and kill them, okay? That's where the story mostly ends for people. There's a bigger what-if story, and one that I hope I'm going to popularize in this book a bit, which is about eight or nine months before he was killed, Franz Ferdinand went to Welbeck Abbey in England and was on a hunting expedition. And what he did there was he decided to get set to go hunting. And they had this person called a loader, who is basically, it sounds what he, what he is, he loads the guns. And there's this fresh snowfall that is just laid down, and so it's a beautiful white, uh, crisp snowfall. And as he's loading the gun, the servant, basically, he slips. 
The gun goes off, and the bullet goes over Franz Ferdinand's uh, shoulder by missing his head and the rest of his body by three inches. And you know, this is one of those great counterfactuals of history. We don't know what would have happened. But would World War I have occurred if he had been killed there and not assassinated in a trigger event for World War I? We don't know. But this is one of those things where you have to think that the, the world would be different, right? Because even if World War I had started, the way that things start is different, right? And this is what I, I was having a discussion about the book when I was writing it with a historian about uh, the Kyoto story I told you and so on, or the World War I story. And he said, you know, well, look, you know, whether it's Kyoto or Hiroshima, World War II would have ended. Uh, the Americans were still going to win, right, in, in, in that theater. I said, sure. But do you really think that, like, history would not be determined differently if 100,000 different people died? And indeed, if Motu Kimura had died, also one of the people who's a founding father of meteorology, was in Kyoto at the time, uh, who came up with lots of the ideas around storm prediction and the F scale for uh, tornadoes is named after him, he would have been dead. The number of people who've gone to Kyoto have been affected by it. Or if World War I had started with a different time, or a different place, or a different trigger, yes, the world would be different. And I think this is the area where we impose categories of binaries, yes or no, do you win or do you lose? Does the war start or does it not? Reality is not a binary category. It's a category we impose on the world. Reality is continuous. And so when you change small things, they do have ripple effects. And if Franz Ferdinand had died at Welbeck Abbey, I think World War I would have unfolded differently, if, even if it had happened. Now, this begs the question, why are we becoming more prone to flukes? Because I've given you an example from 1914. So uh, th this is something where I think we have shifted, and we've made ourselves more prone to these shocks from small changes. So why is that? Well. Let's put the history of the world, uh, history of the human species in 24 hours on the screen. So if you take, there's about, the average human generation is 26.9 years over the long stretch of humanity, okay? If you work that out and you say, okay, scientists have debate about modern humans and so on, 200,000, 300,000 years, something like that. We'll split the difference, 250,000 years. You work it out, it's about 9,500 generations of humans. In a 24-hour cycle, the hunter-gatherer age was 23 hours and 3 minutes, okay? The agrarian age in which farming develops about 10,000 years ago, 55 minutes and 32 seconds. The Industrial Revolution starts a minute and 17 seconds ago, and the Information Age, which I suggest started in my lifetime, is about 11 seconds of human history, okay? We live in the weirdest period that has ever existed for humanity. It's the most unusual, unusual social system that has ever been produced for humans to live with them. And the reason why I say it's different is because we flipped a fundamental dynamic that I uh, talk about in Fluke, which is moving from what I call local instability to global stability, for, for, with that, to local stability and global instability. Now this is a mouthful, what does it actually mean? Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ, ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. In the past, for the most of human history, people encountered uncertainty and risk in their daily lives, right? They did not understand where the next food was going to come, the next meal was going to come from. Their crops might fail if they were agrarians. You know, if they were hunting, they might not find any animals. If they were gathering, they might not find any berries. So they dealt with local instability. They're, you know, they try to have a kid, it dies. All these things are unpredictable. And they're just constantly dealing with calamities in their daily life. 
But they had global stability. And what I mean by that is that their world didn't change that much. If you were a hunter-gatherer, your kids were hunter-gatherers. Their kids were hunter-gatherers for thousands of generations. And this meant that there was a world that operated in the same patterns of cause and effect and also in the same ways to survive. So you could tell your children, here's what you do. This is how you make it in the world, okay? We have completely flipped that dynamic. We have incredible local stability. You dial up something on Amazon and you know what hour it's going to arrive at your house. And you have a world in which you can predict huge amounts of stuff about your commute, all these regularities of patterns. And indeed, some cell phone analysis, geolocated cell phone analysis by some economists found that they could predict with 93% accuracy where any individual would be at any given time based on their routines and habits. So we're, we're, we're creatures of routine, we're creatures of patterns, but we have complete global instability, right? The world is changing rapidly, there's shocks all the time, the 21st century, we've got 9-11, the Iraq war, the financial crisis, the Arab Spring, Brexit, Trump, the pandemic, Ukraine, Gaza, all these things that have diverted the trajectories of history are happening with extreme regularity and they're more consequential for more people. The pandemic, I mean, I would argue the most important or influential person in the 21st century is not Donald Trump or Xi Jinping, it's whoever got sick with COVID the first time because that individual upended the lives of 8 billion people for years. So this aspect of global instability means that we have effectively created an upside down world where Starbucks never changes, but democracies collapse and rivers dry up. It's a serious problem that we've engineered. And the reason we've done that is because we have basically worshipped, in my view, at the gospel of efficiency and optimization, where we have designed systems that have no slack in them. Uh, the idea, you know, we have this in our, in our sort of lives, right? You get the life hack checklist. Here's how to like, get your last 3% of efficiency or whatever, the hustle culture. But in our societies, it's the same, just-in-time manufacturing, right? Let's get the last ounce of inefficiency out of the system. That sounds good, but it actually embeds systemic risk in which flukes become more consequential than ever before. So the Arab Spring is a perfect example of this because a man in central Tunisia in late 2010 uh, in, decided to light himself on fire. Uh, it was um, Mohamed Bouazizi, who was a vegetable vendor, disillusioned at his life prospects, lights himself on fire, self-immolation in late 2010. This is the result. Multiple regimes collapse, Civil wars kill hundreds of thousands of people. A single individual triggers this. Now, this is self-organized criticality. Obviously, there was a lot of anger in the Middle East. This wouldn't have happened if everyone was happy. If a person lights themselves on fire in Norway, it's not going to cause a mass revolution, right? But self-organized criticality argues that if you optimize the absolute limit, if you build the sand pile to the top, to the point where one grain of sand can cause a cascade, that a person lighting themselves on fire can lead to civil war, can lead to revolution, and can lead to mass violence. Now, on top of this, there's a more recent example from two years ago, two and a half years ago, you probably remember this image, where a gust of wind hits a single boat and it twists sideways in the Suez Canal in 2021. This one boat caused $54 billion in economic damage. By one estimate, it shaved up to 0.4% of global GDP off of the economic growth forecast for the year. Never before in human history has it been possible for one boat to upend the economies for literally billions of people, right? So this is self-organized criticality in the modern world where we have ensured that each grain of sand can be more consequential. And this is something that I think is going to become even more uh, pronounced with artificial intelligence and so on, uh, systems that have very little slack, hyper-efficient, but much more risky. Now I'm gonna conclude a few remarks before I get into the Q&A. What do we do with this, right? I mean, this is the question that a lot of people ask me. It's like, okay, 
You've given us a lot of bewildering ideas. You've sort of told us a lot of things that our lives are uncontrollable. How are we supposed to live? So how do we navigate a world of flukes? Sorry, my, my voice is going. <laughs> All right, so how do we navigate a world of flukes? Well, first thing we have to do is we have to accept what I would call causal and radical uncertainty. So there are some aspects of uncertainty that are simply untamable. We can't do anything about them. And I think one of the things that's the lesson, and I, I go into great detail in the book about this, but it's something where I think is an important lesson is just to accept that lack of control. We can't tame the world. We, when we try, it backfires, right? So what we do is we want to minimize harm. There are some aspects of uncertainty that we also cannot solve with information. There's no model, and I talk at great length, if you're interested in the Q&A, we can talk about this more, but there's, when it comes to radical uncertainty, there is no model that can help you navigate any sort of probabilistic you know, thinking or any sort of decision-making when you are in the realm of radical uncertainty, and we are in that quite often. So that sort of acceptance of our limitations, our lack of hubris that we need to embed in our thinking about these problems is extremely important to avoiding some of the catastrophes that I think are avoidable in modern life. The second lesson I think that's important in a moment of chaos and uncertainty, and this is again derived from the wisdom of evolution, is to experiment more. And experimentation is an extremely smart way of dealing with uncertainty. If you think about the way that evolution works, it's basically undirected experimentation through random mutations, and it produces really smart ideas because some things work and some things don't. Now, when this comes to our own lives, I'm not just talking about binturongs in Southeast Asia, I'm talking about us. One of the things that I think is a lesson that is uplifting to me about the worldview that I hope uh, I've convinced you is, has some merit is that forced experimentation also has some wisdom associated with it. Getting yourself to try new things and try different strategies for living actually makes you more likely to have a fulfilling and successful life. And I'm going to go back to economics for a second. There's a great example, again, close to home. A couple of years ago when there was a tube strike, um, there was an instance where these economists decided to look at cell phone data. And they looked at you know, geolocation and so on. And what they found was really interesting. They said everybody found a different way to work. Right? All these people who used to commute on the tube had to go a different way. Some of them walked, some of them took the bus, whatever it was. Some of them cycled, etc. What was fascinating was that 5% of the people, right, of all, of all Londoners, stuck with the new route to work. So when they were forced to change out of something that was out of their control that they surely saw as a massive inconvenience, they actually decided they liked the alternative better. And that forced experimentation is one where I think the lesson for society is also very apt. I think for policy, we have to experiment way more. I think there should be way more experimentation in public policy. And another nice example, just because I like to tell a story, is uh, my, my favorite examples from sort of art history, music history, was uh, is a jazz musician, Keith Jarrett, with jazz pianist, who uh, Tim Harford has talked about this story before. I'm, I'm, I'm riffing off him a bit. But he arrives at this uh, concert hall in Cologne, where he's going to you know, play to this packed audience. And he has ordered the exact specification of piano he wants, right? And I mean, it's a packed co concert hall, so like, he gets what he wants. But someone has screwed up and didn't order the piano. So all there is is this like, rickety piano. It's a practice instrument. It's terrible. It's out of tune. It's 20 years old, etc. What happens is there's no time to get a new piano. So the choice is cancel the concert to play on the crappy piano. And Jarrett decides to just go ahead with the concert. But he has to play differently, right? Because it's not, the musician, it's not the instrument that he's used to. He adapts himself, he experiments, he tries new things. This concert, you can look it up, 
best-selling jazz album of all time. It is a, a piece of beautiful music produced by forced experimentation. And so I think this lesson of uncertainty and chaos means that the best way to navigate it sometimes is to try new things because we don't understand the causal dynamics. We can't control things. So if you try out new strategies, it's a very good piece of advice. The last thing that I would say in terms of practical advice for society is to focus on resilience more and optimization slash efficiency slightly less. Now, this is not to say that efficiency or optimization are bad things. It's to say that the sand pile should be a little bit lower. It'll make us more resilient. And one of the good examples of this comes from Latin America, where there was a, an electrical grid that was put in. And they had a bit of a debate in the government where they said, look, you know, we, we can set this grid up a few different ways. And the winning choice was to dial down the efficiency, make it more expensive, it costs way more. Um, but they decided to set up regional hubs. And these regional hubs meant that when a blackout happened in one place, it was localized. And lo and behold, when blackouts happened, they caused minimal economic damage. And so it more than paid for itself because there were blackouts. And the rest of the society ticked along because they had decided to have a little bit more resilience, a little bit less optimization. I think it's a lesson that we have totally forgotten in the 21st century where the idea of less optimization, less efficiency is heresy in public policy making or indeed in our own lives uh, where we talk about life hacks and, and how to get through checklists as uh, fast as possible. Now I'll conclude with my two words of advice before I take your questions, which I'm sure will challenge my, my point of view uh, directly, which are words of advice from the man who was the son of uh, my great-grandfather who came home to that farmhouse in Wisconsin in 1905, my grandfather. My grandfather gave me very good life advice that I think applies exceptionally well, not just to ourselves, but to our societies and how we build resilience. He said, the secret to a good life, avoid catastrophe. And I think that's how I'll end the talk. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed it, and thank you very much for listening. So we now have time for Q&A. I believe we have ushers, yep, with microphones. I will try to keep a cue. Thank you for that amazing talk. Um, my name is Prajakta, and I come from a context where uh, the sand pile seems to be getting higher all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about financial crises mm -hmm. and the buildup of systemic risk. How do we know when the sand pile has grown tall enough? Yeah, it's a great question. I agree with you completely. There's one very short section in Fluke where I talk about the uh, systemic risk in finance. And there's a, you, you've probably all heard of the Wolf of Wall Street, but the, uh, the counterpart is the Hound of Hounslow, um, who decided to, just for kicks, try to see if he could mess with financial markets a little over a decade ago. And he wiped out more than a trillion dollars of, uh, of, of wealth in five minutes because he understood how to game a computer algorithm. And so, you know, when they did an evaluation of that instance, they, didn't, they couldn't explain it. They did, I think it was two years of investigations, and they still don't fully understand what happened. And I think that should give us pause, right? I mean, the speed of trading, for example, I mean, it's one of these things where speed in, in human societies used to be measured in days and, and, and then became hours and so on. I mean, now with the competitions in financial markets, I mean, if you're milliseconds behind your competition, you're wiped out, right? So I think this is something where, uh, with high volume trading and all these sorts of things, plus AI being involved, I think we're careening towards uh, guaranteed risk. 
And I think it's a bad bet, basically. I mean, my point of view, and I think this is something we did not learn from the financial crisis, is that we'd be better off with slightly lower growth that's sustainable. Because the shocks, I mean, the thing that's the mistake that social scientists make, in my view, is that we view these things as aberrations. We're like, and even in some data, I mean, you know, I've seen this in, in papers that I've read in social science, they actually delete the shock because the outlier, right? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the sand pile. The sand pile says that the, 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 the collapse is a result of the system. So it's inevitable. If you build the sand pile up high enough, it's going to collapse. That is part of the system. So if you delete the data that says the shock has happened, you've just fundamentally, it's like, oh, this was this weird thing that happened. No, you engineered it. So um, I, you know, I, I, I do worry about this a lot. I think there's um, a huge number of realms, finance being one of them, where we're getting to a point where we don't understand what's happening with decision making. And additionally, and this is where I'll just riff briefly off of AI. I mean, AI is trained on past data that involves cause and effect. And you know, David Hume a long time ago raised the problem of how do you know that the past pattern is going to be predictive of the future. That's more of a problem than ever before because the patterns of causality are shifting faster than ever before. So you know, this, you, you, we all understand this with climate change, right? It's like, oh, it's a 100-year flood. Why is the 100-year flood happening every three years? Well, it's because the cause and effect dynamics have now changed. And I think when you, when you train models on past patterns, you embed the possibility that you're going to have uh, systemic risk. So I, I wish I had a more uplifting answer for you. I think we're not grappling with this. One of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I'm really worried about the sort of brazenness with which we um, approach these problems and, and think that optimization is the holy grail. Hi, thank you. Um, uh, Anthony, so I'm an alumnus. I studied here in 2008, 2009. Uh, and I mentioned that because this is a fantastic coda tonight, your talk, to an event that happened, I think, in this very room 15 years ago when David Aronovich was giving his talk about a book that he'd written on conspiracy theories. And Dr. Klaus, have you basically, by introducing us to chaos theory and the narrative animal, been able to negate every single conspiracy theory in the world? Because we can just say it's not all a plot. They, the big capital T, don't, don't know everything. It's all just random. In which case, congratulations. Well. <laughs> I, well, I'd love to respond to that, because actually I do have a section in Fluke about conspiracy theories in the chapter on, on storytelling. And, and you know, Jonathan Gottschall, who I, I drive a lot of stuff, he studies uh, narrative. And he, he's a really interesting figure who studies narrative bias and how stories sway human behavior. I think he has the simplest, most elegant explanation for conspiracy theories being sticky, which is to say why they're so difficult to debunk that I've heard before. Of course, there's all sorts of stuff with identity and all these sorts of things. What he says, he says, look, you've got a brain that's evolved for pattern detection. And then something sort of random happens, like Princess Diana gets killed in a car accident, right? It's just a like, small, banal reason. Now, magnitude bias, which is something also that is in existence with, with conspiracy theories, says that you can't have small causes for big effects. We don't like that idea, right? You have to have a big cause for a big effect. And so the psychology of this, with Princess Diana in particular, there are a, a number of conspiracists who will answer that they simultaneously believe it's true that she is still alive and that she was killed by the British government. And those two things cannot be possible, but it's more appealing to them than the idea that it was a random car accident, right? Now, with Gottschall and the storytelling animal aspect, what he says is, okay, take QAnon. QAnon's a, you know, a, a conspiracy theory that I lament to say about half of Republicans in the United States say they believe. Uh, and a central tenet of it is that the Democratic Party is involved in satanic trafficking of children, okay? Now, if you were going to make this into a film, let's take away the political implications, right? <laughs> but if you're going to make this into a film, it's a thriller. It's a really interesting story. 
And what the journalists who are debunking it are telling the storytelling animal is there's no story. And it's a losing, it's, it's a lost fight. It's, it's, you've already lost the battle because the brain is, is, is so attuned to pattern detection that being told there is no pattern versus, hold on, there's this really interesting hidden pattern that only you can understand. I think that's one of the best explanations that I've come across for conspiracist thinking. And of course, the glue of identity for people who are socially isolated and so on uh, solidifies these dynamics. But I think the storytelling is a central component of it. Hi, Dr. Klaas. Um, first of all, thank you so much for your presentation and congratulations on your book. Uh, my question is, um, despite the fact that yes, there is, as you said, this century has seen more global instability and a sort of randomness to our world events, but uh, as a political scientist yourself, do you not see certain uh, strands of, uh, or patterns which uh, are also not, uh, not too obscure, rather obvious, I mean, things to do with capital accumulation, Western hege hegemony and stuff like that, which are leading to direct um, problems in many parts of the world? Um, and also when you talk about uh, as a solution that where our systems need to be more resilient and less focused on optimization. So what does that look like more specifically in our economic and political systems? What is resilience over optimization? Sure. So for the first question, I mean, I think there are, I, I've spared you this discussion of uh, E. coli that I have in the book where I talk about how I think that contingent convergence is the way that change happens, which is to say that there are contingent events that direct history and, and, and patterns in arbitrary ways. And then within those, relatively ordered progressions unfold. So this is where you have the debate between like the institutionalists and the sort of chaos theory stuff. And I think both of them are real. Trends are real. Um, there are patterns in, in, in systems and so on. But I also think, I mean, I think we do underplay, and I will say this as a political scientist, I mean, the history of the 21st century is a history of broken forecasts. I mean, every geopolitical forecast was invalidated by the 2001 September 11th uh, terrorist attack. Iraq invalidated a huge number of forecasts. The financial crisis invalidated every single economic forecast for a generation. I mean, the pandemic, I mean, how, how wrong were they in 2019 about how the world is gonna look, right? So I think there's this hubris that we have that is, uh, it, it's, this is why I highlight the sand pile model because a frame of reference shift that I think is so important. In one version of reality, you look at the patterns and you say, oh, well, let's focus on that because we can see capital accumulation or rising inequality or whatever. So let's extrapolate from that. And in, the, and in the other sense, you say, hold on, but there's these massive outliers where the shocks happen and they obliterate these changes that we've seen or this progress that we've made. And I think you have to take them both together, right? Um, but yes, I mean, in some closed systems, one of the things, I think one of the origin stories of this book in a way for me professionally is that, uh, in addition to the mass murder thing I told you about, is um, I studied in my PhD, I studied coups. Like, I, I looked at how rigged elections provoked political violence and coups and civil wars. Coups are very hard to predict. And I will say with all, you know, uh, with all due respect to myself, I, I think my quantitative models from my PhD are not great. Because basically what they did was they were able to show, here's a universe of countries in which a coup is likely to occur based on patterns of past behavior. But if I asked all of you to list a set of criteria that would put a country on that list, you'd probably come up with the exact same ones that I did in my model which are validated by quantitative data, but like they're pretty obvious. Really poor countries with a past history of coups and poor civil military dynamics and you know, maybe a dictator. Like, that's like 90% of the explanation. What we can't do with any certainty is say, a coup will happen in this country this year. We have no way of doing that. Our models can get way better, they'll still never be able to do that, right? So I think this is the stuff where it depends on what kind of question you're asking. You know, like sports, for example, uh, and I talk about sports a little bit in Fluke briefly, um, it's a closed system. 
It's a highly predictable system. The rules always apply. The same teams play each other each season, right? At least in the US, I know there's relegation and stuff here. But, um, but the point is that like, you can actually really use data to squeeze every ounce of inefficiency out of sports, and it works. It makes the game a bit more boring, but like it, it works, right? But that's a closed system, and most of what we, we exist within are not closed systems. The rules are not followed. There are no rules in some places. The individual agents sometimes cheat, right? I mean, there's all these rampant uh, ripple effects and so on. So I, I, I think that, that that's where you know, we exist between order and disorder. I hope that, that answers the first part of the question. The, the second part was about the resilience question. And I think in, in, you know, in financial markets, much more regulation. Um, you know, it's things where you try to ensure that, you know, like the speed of trading, for example. There's, there's not really a reason why speed, it, I mean, this is one of the things I, when you write a book like this, uh, you know, you have all these different ideas and often they end up getting cut. And one of the ones that got cut was I, I, I wrote about um, technology increasing the speed of change um, in the world in terms of financial trading. And I had to cut 20,000 words from the book because my editor told me to, so uh, that's part of what got cut. But I looked into this a lot, and you know, it's the high-frequency trading stuff. It's like there's not actually any wealth being produced by it. It's like people are getting edges because they're faster with their algorithm than their competitor. It's not like good for the world. It's not like, oh, well, we've produced something tangible. It's like, oh, we were slightly faster with our fiber optic cable, or now they're using microwaves, and there's even, you know, satellites, you know, there's crazy technology trying to get these um, little tiny bits of efficiency. Why do we need that? You know, I mean, I think there's questions about, like, do, do we need to have a trade that happens so fast that a trillion dollars can be wiped out in five minutes? I don't know. I, I, I question that. And I think those are some of the assumptions that are just accepted in modern economics that the price of them, I think, could be really, really high. And I don't think we've seen the kind of catastrophic downturns that are possible that AI uh, could embed in the financial markets. So. Can I actually use chair's action? I really want to ask my question because yeah, it follows from this. So. Would you then say that one of the best ways we have available to us to kind of gain traction on this world of, of flukes would be a granular qualitative social science? I, we are at the LSE, so I want to ask about, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, is, the, is that the way? I mean, sort yeah. of is a rejection of big data and towards a more... Yeah, so I'm an, I'm an evangelist and, and I have a chapter, the chapter that deals with self-organized criticality and so on is, is evangelizing for complexity um, and complex systems which is, you know, it's a realm that I think is so obviously the right way to deal with these problems, but it hasn't caught on. And I think it's sort of an arbitrary contingent reason why it hasn't caught on, because of disciplinary silos. Like, nobody wants to have the economics department be subsumed by this larger umbrella department that, you know, embeds all these different people. But, like, the Santa Fe Institute is a great place for this. I, I really believe in it. I think they have a blind spot, though, because almost all of the complexity people are quantitative. And what they do is they bring together physicists, economists, you know, social scientists, et cetera, along with lots of people who do meteorological modeling, modeling, epidemiology, et cetera, and they try to think in an interdisciplinary way about how to do better models. I think they have a blind spot for qualitative analysis. And I think this is one of the things that you know, I, um, I, I do lament about the state of social science is that I have a chapter. Um, <laughs> This will not get me any favors on the conference circuit. I'm not going to be friends with uh, people after this. But uh, the title of the chapter is The Emperor's New Equations. And um, you know, I, I think there are some models in social science that we're making for the sake of modeling. Oh, yeah. and, I, and I think that there is a lot of stuff where we're chasing what I call the holy grail of causality, where we want to have like, the perfect identification strategy for causal inference. But the model is absolutely useless. And I think one of the things that, when I say useless in the sense of it doesn't help us understand the world or avoid problems. 
And you know, I will say from personal experience, I did qualitative and quantitative research for my, uh, for, for my own research. Living in Madagascar or Zambia or Tunisia or Thailand for months on end, I think I genuinely became an expert in those countries' dynamics. I really understood what was going on uh, in, in talking to politicians, generals in the military, understanding the coup plotters' mentality and so on. I don't think I became an expert by doing the number crunching in my model. I think it's important for understanding the trends. I think it's important for understanding the patterns. But you know, I, I think it's really bizarre. I went to a coup uh, conference. These things exist, right? I went to a conference for people with coups, about coups. I was on a panel, um, and I was the only person on the panel who had been to a country where a coup had happened. And I was the only person on the panel who had spoken to a coup plotter. And I was like, you know, imagine you go to like a conference on like elephants. And like, yeah, I've never seen one. But I imagine, based on my data, that this is what happens, right? I mean, it'd be pretty weird. So I think there's this odd thing that happens with the sort of assessments of, of quantitative modeling that is, you know, blinding ourselves to a source of information that we should harness. And, you know, I believe, personally, I believe that everything has mathematical principles underlying it. Um, I, I didn't get into the whole can of worms about determinism, but I don't believe in free will, and I'm a determinist and all that stuff. But, um, but yeah, so I do believe math underlies pretty much everything that exists in the world. But I think that we blind ourselves to insights about causal dynamics if we don't incorporate qualitative analysis and field work. Yeah. And that's what a lot of social scientists working in anthropology and- Yes, um, it's not a popular opinion qualitative in, in political science modern political for, science, I would say. Yeah, yeah, a long time. So that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, so we'll take one more question from the floor and then we're gonna go to the online questions. Thank you. My name's uh, James Wyatt. And it's really interesting that you talk about the blind spots. We're also in a world where discussion is a bit really poor as well in terms of sort of trying to develop thoughts about sort of counter narratives and how we may sort of think differently. So I'm, I guess I'm keen to think, you know, listening to a really interesting perspective, but how do you think actually it is possible to get people to think that there might be a different way? Well, I mean, there's no silver bullet, right? I mean, I hope that a lot of people read my book. Uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, I think it's one of these things where you start, you start talking about this stuff. I mean, I, I did feel uncomfortable. I had a conversation with my editor, uh, my, my editor in England, and I was like, look, I, you know, I think I'm gonna, especially the chapter on social science and so on, I think I'm gonna really alienate some people with this. And he said, well, you know, write what you think is true. Um, and, and I think there's some of this stuff where you hope that there's discussions around this. I think, you know, one of the things that I think is a very easy sell to people is that so much of our world runs on models now. And uh, I don't think there's enough discussion of how we have falsely understood the, the funhouse mirror of modeling as though it is the real world, right? No one looks at Google Maps and like, that is what nature looks like. They understand Google Maps is not the world. But like when you talk about economics, you're like, this is the economy because my model is showing you this, right? And I think this is the conversation we need to have more is that there's a lot of modeling that sometimes, you know, there's a classic case or a classic quote by George Box of all models are wrong, some are useful. I hope what we can convince people of is that modeling is not the world and therefore we need to understand these complex dynamics more and think about resilience much more. And I also think, you know, it's not a hard sell to tell people, you know, the, the title of a piece I wrote uh, before the book came out was, you know, why is the world falling apart? And like, everyone has this sense. Like, this is not a hard sell to say like, yeah, like this seems really bad and it seems like these things are blindsiding us more often than ever. I think there's a reason for it. I don't think it's like just this random, like there's some random dynamics, but I think there's, I think there's actually a reason that we've engineered the system that's more prone to these shocks of randomness and so on. So I think that there's this, this like widespread viewpoint is something we can tap into and start discussing more um, why it's happening. I, I feel like a lot of people feel like the playthings 
of larger forces. And even though we can't control the world, I think we can assert a bit more influence on uh, developing resilience. So I, it's not the best answer to your question, but I hope it gives some answer. And now for some questions from our online audience. Hello. Yeah, my name is Kay. I'm from the Department of Government, and I'm going to be uh, directing the online questions to you now. Um, we've gotten three questions, and if it's okay with you, Brian, I can ask them one by one and give you some time to reply in between. Yep. Um, the first question comes from Owen. He's an LSE alumnus from Ireland, based in Paris. And he asks, if we look to a global policy perspective, can we interpret your thesis as one where we need to compartmentalize or contain these risky sand piles so that any collapse is limited in its scope? If so, what does that look like? And are there governance systems that exemplify how to do this well? Yeah, so I do think that this is important. And I think it's something where there are, there are aspects that are unavoidable in terms of their uncertainty. There's things you can't predict. Um, but there are other aspects that you can anticipate and we don't often uh, plan for. So give you a specific example of this. Um, when, the, when the Challenger space shuttle exploded um, in, in 1986, there were several launches of that space shuttle that had the exact same dynamics as the ultimate explosion. It just turned out it wasn't cold enough for the space shuttle to blow up and the O-ring to fail. But it didn't get audited as a process because there was no catastrophe, right? You only audit the failures, you never audit the successes. And I think one of the things that we need to do a lot more of to build this resilience is think about, okay, even when stuff didn't go wrong, what could have gone wrong? And this is where I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole, I'm not qualified to weigh in on this, of the origin story of COVID-19. But the lab leak hypothesis is one in which um, we know that lab leaks for different pathogens have happened. We also know that the number of biosecurity uh, level three and level four labs in places like China is exploding through the roof. And they're largely unregulated, right? So this is something where we understand pandemics are a systemic risk, and we're basically not taking action to minimize a possible vector, right? I'm not saying that 2020 was a vector from the lab leak, I don't know. But I, th there's a possible way that a lab leak could produce a pandemic. And we're not doing anything about it because now the world has moved on, right? So th this, is, this is one of those things I think is just so depressing about humanity is like we get through a problem and then we sort of unlearn the lessons. I mean, the same is happening. I talked to your question about financial markets. I mean, a lot of the deregulation that's happening or that has happened in, in some of the areas where you know, certain cr you know, cryptocurrencies or AI and finance, I mean, we're not learning the same lessons. And I think this is the kind of stuff where you have to audit the successes as well and think, what could have gone wrong even when it didn't. Um, that compartmentalization would flow from it, I think. Um, and, and I also think that you know, it would, a little bit of just-in-time manufacturing, having slight more, slightly more um, slack in the system would probably be good for us as well, where it doesn't have to be to the minute in order for the economy to function. Thank you, Brian. Um, our next question comes in from Francesco Gonzalez-Santeno. And Francesco, I really hope I've done your name justice here. Um, he asks, I struggle with the concept of resilience when it can be oppressive, as in we should accept bad things and get used to them and be stronger, or the keep calm and carry on mantra. This concept can be used to justify submission and can indeed contradict change and revolutions. And it can go hand in hand with the concept of productivity and efficiency. What do you think? 
Well, I don't agree, obviously. I think you can probably tell. But I think that the, um, the reason I don't agree is because I think that it's, it's something where you're basically, let, let, let's say that you've got two systems, right? One of them grows at 5% a year, and then it has a catastrophic collapse where there's no growth for 20 years. And one of them grows at 3% a year, but it's always 3% a year. I would take the second, right? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a steady system that is stable and is resilient over a system that is going to have higher productivity, higher growth, et cetera, but is going to collapse. And that is true for vulnerable people around the world too, right? I mean, Madagascar, a country I do lots of work in, it's a place where it had 9% growth for years and years and years, and then it has a coup. And then it has wiped out growth for 10 years, and then it has 9% growth, right? And it would be so much better off with stable, lower growth. Um, I'm not saying that it should, I, I'm not saying low growth is good. I'm, you know, better, we want to have as high growth as possible within a stable environment. But I think it's a false choice to say that if you want to have a sustainable situation, you're going to have to make people oppressed. You just have to have something that's actually going to produce longer term, better outcomes. Thank you. So for our final question, I'm going to merge two. Um, Richard Stevens asked, uh, if we try forced experimentation, aren't we more likely to invite catastrophe? And um, to close out, we have C.K. So from LSE and St. Anthony's College and Oxford alumni who asks, which I think is the question we all are asking ourselves, how do we avoid catastrophe as advised by your grandfather and live a good life? <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna go poetic on the second question, but the uh, forced experimentation question, no, I mean, I think what I'm talking about here is, uh, you know, like, I, I write for the media sometimes, right? And one of the things that the media does, they do A-B testing, where what, I'll, I'll write an article, and there'll be two headlines, and they'll randomly decide which user gets which headline, and then they see which one ends up getting more engagement. It doesn't create risk, it's just trying to trial new things, right? And it would be better than if some editor said, I know exactly the right, uh, headline for this story, and I'm going to pick it. So the wisdom of that in public policy, I think, is one where experimentation, when you don't actually know the answer, if you know the answer, right, if you, if you figured out the system perfectly and you know how to solve it, by all means, right, I'm not saying experiment when we have the answer. But like a great example of this is with, um, you know, homelessness, people who, who, who don't have, um, you know, homes. There, there was an experiment that was done in, I think it was in Vancouver, where they said, we don't know how to solve this problem. We're going to do a randomized control trial where uh, we'll give some people uh, temporary housing, counseling, drug treatment, all sorts of these things, benefits basically. And the other group, we're going to give them $7,500 in cash. Now, it's a hard sell to taxpayers, right? This is, a hard, this is why this doesn't happen very often because it's really difficult to tell taxpayers. We're just going to give lump, lumps of cash to people. The money gave people much better outcomes. It produced way less long-term homelessness. It produced way less drug use. And in what world would you have ever imagined that? I and mean, they found that out because they tried. And I think there's some things where, you know, in public policy, I think experimentation is a very important thing to do when you don't know the answer. Um, and so, you know, I, there, there was, some of this was done during the pandemic, although in, in very haphazard and ineffective ways. But I think, you know, there, there are ways they could have thought about this. We didn't know what would work best. Let's try a few things in different places and see what happens. I mean, I think this is something where we don't like the idea of being guinea pigs, but we would all prefer to have public policy that's informed by evidence. And instead, what mostly happens is ideology, based on a sense of control, dictates what policies get passed. So one party says this will work best, the other party says that will work best, we pick one, and then we're, we have no alternative, we don't know, right? Now, with the final question about how to avoid catastrophe, I will go slightly poetic here. The last chapter of the book is the closest thing I've ever written to self-help, I think. Um, but, you know, I, I think this is something where 
my view of writing this book uh, fundamentally changed the way I think about my own life in the world. And it has philosophical implications for how I think about you know, how to live that are highly different from what I thought about three or four years ago. And, and one of those areas where you know, I think we are basically taught, I think, in Western modernity that the good life is one in which you take as large a share of the world as you possibly can get, right? Uh, it's basically that's the sort of mentality that underpins most of our systems. I think it's a bad set of advice. <laughs> um, you know, I think that one of the things that is, uh, is, is important is to think about resilience in our own lives. What, you know, what do you do? How do you embed that into your own life and, and sort of think about contingencies that could go wrong? But also, you know, I think that it's easier to avoid catastrophe if your life um, sort of plan or your life worth is not tied to outcomes that are potentially outside of your control. You know, I, I, I think about the trajectory of my life, I have been so lucky. I mean, there's so many things that I cannot take credit for that have produced really positive outcomes for me. And, you know, if I embedded all of my self-worth in things that were outside of my control, I would be setting myself up for uh, a real letdown. I mean, one of the things that I did, I, I wrote a huge amount of this book after I walked my dog or I went camping. I mean, things that, you know, the world can go to hell and I will still be able to walk my dog and go camping probably, right? And there's, some, there's things like this where I think there's an aspect of our modern mentality, and I see this through the prism of my students asking for advice all the time, where they reflect back at me this worldview that if I don't get the internship at Goldman Sachs, my life is ruined as a 22-year-old. It's a bizarre worldview, but it's really common. So I think in this sort of um, poetic way of thinking about life plans, avoiding catastrophe is also not making yourself philosophically beholden to a worldview in which your self-worth and your identity is intertwined with a system in which the sand pile is at its absolute maximum limit and you have limited control over what happens when the avalanche occurs. So I will close there and say thank you so much for being a lovely audience for your excellent question. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.